university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers podcast, and this is part two of a wide-ranging conversation that I have been having with Dr. Rick Stevens from the University of Colorado Boulder and Chris Maverick, who is a doctoral student at Duquesne University. And we have been having this wide-ranging conversation about the X-Men, this story of what it means to be an oppressed people. And right now, I think there is probably no more salient conversation that we can be having in this country than what it means to be an oppressed people. If you don't think that this is a salient conversation, you haven't really been looking around all that hard in the past few days. So if you have not listened to part one of this conversation, you're going to want to go back and listen to that episode, season for episode five, so that you are up to speed on what we're talking about here, because today's episode jumps right into the middle of the conversation. So go back and do the homework. And for those of you who have already done that, here is part two of that conversation. Here we begin with Chris Maverick discussing how we can incorporate the X-Men into the existing MCU. So the Infinity Saga from the MCU, even if you just take just Infinity War and Endgame, frankly, it is so much better of a story than the Infinity Gauntlet and, and Infinity War story that actually came out in comics. I remember it finally, but there's a lot of homework to do to get to Infinity Gauntlet that it wouldn't have worked. It was a bigger story. It's goofy in a lot of ways. It's a special kind of person that can be enough of a fan to accept the ridiculousness of what Jim Starlin writes. Death, Silver Surfer, all of it. Yeah. He's brilliant, but it's he is not for common consumption. Thanos is more interesting in the films. In the comic books, Thanos kills everybody because he wants to have sex with the living embodiment of death. That's his motivation. And it makes sense if you've been a comic book fan for 20 years, but wouldn't have worked on screen. And I get that. And I think that you can do that with the X stuff. I think it's hard. One of the reasons the consistency happens in the X-Men proper title from the 1980s is because one guy wrote it for 16 years. Yeah. The Marvel movies don't lean on that. You got Favreau doing a movie over here. You got Taika Waititi doing a movie over here. You got Joss Whedon doing one. That works for me because the ones that work are the ones that where they've given the director, they've trusted the director to say, look, let me just give you your vision. More or less stay consistent with the story. Age of Ultron is one of the worst of the films because there's a lot of corporate meddling. And Feige knows that and he learned his lesson. He's like, all right, the secret is I should have just let Joss Whedon be Joss Whedon. So I'm going to let the Russo brothers be the Russo brothers. 
and James Gunn be James Gunn. And yeah, okay, fine. The Avengers movies are totally different than the Guardians movies. Whatever. <laughs> James Bond's all over the place. People like those. I think that comic book fans have a gritty to them where they like to complain on the internet. You know, like, I mean, you said it yourself. Wolverine is supposed to be five foot two. Hugh Jackman is way too big to be Wolverine. But but honestly, do you ever go out and say, Benedict Cumberbatch is too attractive to be Sherlock Holmes? What have they done here? And there are people who are fans of Emma, who watched this most recent film adaptation. It's like, she is yeah, a little too modern here. you know. But, but for the most part, you just go, this is a good movie. <laughs> I was just having this conversation with someone who did not like this new Emma. They didn't like it because, oh, that's a terrible Mr. Knightley and she's too modern and blah, blah, blah. And I was, I, I sat through a Jane Austen movie specifically because Anna Taylor-Joy is killing it every second she's on screen. But I would have never made it through the kind of movie that Emma fans would have wanted them to make. And I think that's the parallel here for a lot of hardcore comic book fans. Comic book fans were very conditioned to say, this is not like the thing that I love. And you know what? Honestly, not a single comic book movie has ever been. The ones that are probably closest are the Zack Snyder ones because he didn't actually write a story. He just lifted panels directly out of Watchmen. And it's horrible. It's a, it's a, it's a bad movie. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, I, I am with you. Yeah, so, you know, you want artistry. I don't need somebody to film exactly the thing that I read already, whether it's a comic book or it's a novel, because I read it. I don't need it. So just a little bit of academic translation for our audience. The reason why that often happens, I, I do a lot of fan studies, is if I grow up with Wolverine, there's like this parasocial connection I have with that character. We've talked a lot about parasocial interaction on this program. Let's see if you've done the homework, those of you who are longtime listeners. Parasocial interaction being the idea that we have some sort of relationship with a fictional character or with a television personality, celebrity, who we have never met, but we feel as though we have some sort of personal relationship. You know, if I look at the X-Men, I tend to gravitate towards one of them. If I'm liking the Avengers, I tend to gravitate towards one of them because that's the person that most resonates with a part of me. And that's the danger is you put that on the screen and suddenly it's different. Mm -hmm. You just took the avatar of me and changed it. And of course, fan entitlement and all of that comes into play. So what is interesting about the MCU approach is their ability to thread that needle to get to the point where we're going to show you something that approximates the rough idea. We are, you know, never going to show you the Captain America from the comics. That's not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is to take that as a primer and to put an interesting character that you can identify with as a group. And they're very, very good at that. The the X-Men, though, and this is what we going all the way back to the beginning of our discussion. That's the difference, though, between the X-Men and say the Avengers is that the X-Men is so insular and it is so soap opera driven, but it's mm-hmm. also so personality driven compared to some of these other books that I, I honestly can't wait to see what they do here. But I also know the film is going to be different from the classic eighties, the classic sixties, the cartoon series, which we haven't talked about at all, which was of course its own pop culture. And th- those can all be separate texts that kind of have resemblance to each other. And to the degree that Fox has 
messed up their film franchise. I think they did it because they kind of forgot that. They got a little too clever and they focused on the wrong thing. But again, this goes back to what I said at the very, very beginning of this conversation, which is something like Avengers. Uh, I'm just using Avengers as a stand-in for you, we could throw Batman in there or or Superman or anything. All of these texts, the key difference between those texts and X-Men, and the reason why I keep saying they, they've leaned into the wrong part, is X-Men is explicitly about identity. Yes, yes. And when you have that connection between the reader and the character in the book, it's not just the connection between this character is my favorite character in this narrative. When I, as a reader, say this character represents me as my avatar in this X universe, a whole lot of different parts of my identity are wrapped up in that reflection of me. This one feels a little gayer to me. And as a gay person, that represents me. Or this one feels a little blacker to me. And as a black person, person that better represents me or this one feels you mm-hmm. know whatever whatever the the identity category is and it doesn't no. necessarily have to be a, a direct translation rick and i have talked about this a lot about how jubilee really is my character in the x universe and we couldn't be further apart in terms of identities but just her her narrative and the way yeah. that they build her as a character that's always sort of been i've always gravitated towards her as a character and so there's this sort of internal identity wrapped up in these characters and then you take that and put that on screen and then it's not you've screwed up jubilee (laughs) it's then you don't get me you don't understand me as a person sitting in the theater as a fan as a you don't understand Mm -hmm. me and that's what i think is is the problematic but also some of that is a little bit almost impossible because well sure it's, uh, it's absolutely when, when my impossible. students look at the 60s x-men we spend a lot of time talking about like what's the allegory here and almost all of them say oh well this is clearly an allegory about coming out as gay and that's what it is mm. and this this will go back to something chris was saying a moment ago uh, or, or ways back which is Stan Lee in his final years would say that now. That that (laughs) absolutely was not the allegory. (laughs) That their allegory was about racism. Of course. It was it came out in nineteen sixty-three. Right. And Professor X is clearly a Martin Luther King allegory. Right. And Magneto is clearly a Malcolm X allegory. And both of those stories are clearly told from the perspective of white people who don't understand either one of those actual human beings. And which is why I always get frustrated when people say, well, that's not really true. It's like, no, it is true. This is again being academic instead of a fan with the teacher hat on. There is some great value in teaching problematic text, highly problematic text. One of my favorite things to teach, my favorite novel to teach is Tarzan, because you teach Tarzan, and sooner or later, you know, a bunch of confused freshmen will come in and freshmen, sophomores, and then eventually one of them will very timidly say, Is he? it, it, It seems like he's almost kind of lynching people in this. No, he's exactly lynching people in this. Tarzan lynches black people. Yes, keep going with that. You know, He's a horrible human being who is hanging people for being black from trees because that's what the story of Tarzan is. Go read it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not the swinging from the trees guy that you think. And I like teaching things like that because I like coming up with those issues. Yeah, Stan has problematic views on... People don't like to say Magneto is basically Malcolm X because it makes Malcolm X to be a, out to be the bad guy. Because when Stan wrote it, it was 1963 and he was a white man living in New York 
and white men living in New York in 1963 were terrified of Malcolm X. <laughs> yeah, Malcolm X was scary as hell to white dudes in New York. Yeah. Well, and let's also keep in mind, think about like the Black Panther. The Black Panther, they introduce, they do that, they bring him to the Fantastic Four first, and then they all of a sudden realize that the Black Panther Party exists. And for a while, T'Challa was known as Black Leopard because they wanted to get away from the scary black people, right? I have an article I mean, published on it. It's, it's Historically weird. now, that's, mm-hmm. that's almost lost because Stan Lee would come back and later say, look at this thing we did. I'm like, no, no, no. You didn't do it at the time. <laughs> yes. We didn't right. do nothing. <laughs> it's one issue. It's an amazing issue because, again, I, just, I literally just published an article on this. There's a book called Ages of the Black Panther. It came out. Two or three weeks ago, as we record this, I mean, I've got a chapter in it. It's one issue. Black Panther changes his name to Black Leopard. And his explicit reason for changing it is that he does not want to condone or condemn the racial politics of your country. So he gives up his own identity in a story that, and I am not exaggerating, the rest of the story is about fighting apartheid. That's what that story is about. It is yeah. the most incongruous like (laughs) it makes no sense it is a story entirely about racism and about standing up for black identity in africa in a story in which he renounces his name because of american politics so he changes it there his next two appearances they do not refer to him by a name at all he's just t'challa even though he's in costume and then the next time you see him after that he calls himself black panther and he's in on two pages of a daredevil comic and then the next time you see him after that, he's back in the Avengers and Hawkeye says to him, is it Black Panther or Black Leopard? And he says, I'm going, I'm calling myself Black Panther. It's my name and I don't care about anything else. This is my name. It's my identity, which is a correction to, it's a very clear correction to the one thing that they did. It's like, eh, this is supposed to be his ancestral heritage. You want him to give that up because he doesn't want to be associated with Black people, your first Black superhero? And let's be honest, I'm looking forward to reading your book chapter now. But in the meantime, we have lots of letter columns, right? Mm -hmm. And we have letters that are coming into them like, what are you doing? And to their credit, they do occasionally listen, right? It's clearly (laughs) what happened. It's just, but again, what I said about Claremont and about Lee and Whedon, he is just a human man writing a story. That's all any of us are. No one's above criticism. I, I don't think any, I think most of them are not not entirely good or entirely bad. I think that I could find good stuff to say about the singer movies or find great, I could find good stuff to say about the Zack Snyder movies. It's easy. The intro montage to Watchmen is absolutely breathtaking. Okay, I'm done with that film. <laughs> but there's things I can say, you know, you do your best and like there's good and bad in everything. And I think that that's what, Claremont's not perfect. There are some stories. There's a reason why everybody always picks the Dark Phoenix saga, because it's the one where you're like, wow, it's amazing. There's some stinkers in there, but they fade in memory. Like Claremont is responsible for the rise of the company wide crossover that has become the bane of existence to the modern comic book fan because of Mutant Massacre and Fall of the Mutant and Inferno and the Extinction Agenda. It just keeps going on and on. Every story starts building to these mega crossovers which don't make sense. And it's not just him, a lot of corporately driven. I'm sure he was told to do it, but he still wrote them. And a lot of them aren't really good. It is what it is. There's fond memories. You cannot write one story for 16 years and forever and all of it be great. But through the haze of memory, we just, you know, we pick out the, the amazing right. bits and there are amazing bits. It's, it's a phenomenal run. 
I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Claremont Project, which is the Twitter feed and an academic project that is basically analyzing his entire run. And it, or the Claremont run, it's called, run by a guy named Andrew DeMond, a friend of mine hmm. out of Canada. And it's, um, you know, there's interviews with him and it's an analysis of the entire 16 year run that he's been working on the last couple of years. I think there's a lot of good with X Men. We didn't even get to like really into Hox Box, the modern stuff, which I think is brilliant for another reason. We didn't talk about the North Star Wedding, which is one of the very few positive, oh, we're going to do something queer in this book and it's just going to be fine. <laughs> you know, I don't like how Iceman became gay. I think it was very, very poorly done because I think that yeah. he was outed by Jean Grey twice. Like, like, like the, the, you don't get to tell somebody else they're gay. It, it, it was weird and uncomfortable for me. So, you know, but like, sure, I guess it's good that they're trying good stuff and that's Yeah. And then intertextual, just to add on that, the idea then that we can tie that story of him coming out back to the fact that in the original story, he's the one person that didn't hit on Jean Grey. Because obviously, he wasn't interested for that reason, not because he was far too mm-hmm. young, right? <laughs> we just, the, the context is constant. And everybody ignores the point. There's a point in his storyline where in Defenders, he has a relationship with Cloud, who is a non-binary being that can be male and female. And he doesn't know that at first. So he has a relationship with her while she's female. Then when she turns male, he is very wicked out. But let's ignore that story because it's more, much more convenient to make him have, having always been gay. So I think at this point, I kind of want to pivot a little bit in that we have spent the better part of <laughs> one entire episode and half of another episode talking about X-Men as a text conceptually in these big umbrella terms. We haven't actually talked about any X-Men <laughs> stories at all. We've been talking about the series and about the franchise, but not about the stories so much. And I think that there are several points at which the X-Men as a text does some really super interesting things narratively that may be of interest. I, I will say before we go into this part that up until now, if you're not an X-Men comic book reader... I think you've probably still been able to follow along pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I think if we start getting into specific storylines, I say this as a message to our listeners, but realistically I'm saying this as a message to our two guests that <laughs> we may sure. we may need to do some prep work going into some of these storylines to let our readers, you know, come along with us on a little on a little narrative journey a little bit. Are you telling me that not everybody knows what Alpha Flight is? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> a little bit. Like, you know, Mav brings up the North Star wedding, and I'm like, yeah, that's really, really super interesting. You have to be an X-Men reader to know what that, like, why that's significant. North Star is, right, oh, yeah. North Star's popular. I didn't, I, it's not like I talked about Gamma Flight. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, right. we have all the way back to 1963 to play mm-hmm. with, really. But if you're not an X-Men reader, dear listener, you should understand that the X-Men comic books really happen in five very distinct eras. It's like the dinosaurs and the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic and the Jurassic and the Triassic. (laughs) The X-Men happen in five very distinct periods. There's the what's referred to as the Silver Age. We've talked about Silver Age a little bit in various episodes over the course of the four seasons of this podcast. But the Silver Age really is the 50s and the beginning part of the 60s stuff. 
X-Men debuting in 1963 makes it firmly a Silver Age title. Then there's the Bronze Age. Bronze Age stuff happens from the 70s through the early 80s-ish. We're going to talk about the 80s comics as their own thing, because that's really the big rise of the X-Men. As Rick said in last episode, that rise of the X-Men really happens in the 80s, and so that's its own sort of era. And then there's the 90s to early 2000s era, the latter part of which ends in some really big storylines. This is, for those of you who are X-Men readers here, we're talking Legacy Virus, Mm -hmm. we're talking House of M is really that turn point there. Mm -hmm. And then the modern, quote-unquote modern stuff, which is the last eight or nine years, the first part of that being fairly terrible (laughs) i I think i think the three of us kind of came to that agreement earlier that until things got turned back over to its current writer there was a little period in there here in the tens and that the comic was not great with with one exception yes which was a little tough i'm sure we'll talk about the morrison run which I think is brilliant. It's just not next to me. It's just not next to comic. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who any of those people are, but it's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so these are sort of the five eras and we can point to big X-Men storylines within those eras, things that really carried those comics. Or as Rick pointed out during our break here, we could also just talk about social distancing and Rogue. Rogue's been social distancing since the 1980s. She's got it on lockdown. She knows exactly how to do. She's the champion. Champion of social distancing. (laughs) Where would you guys like to start? What do you want to... What do you want to kick around? We didn't talk about specific storylines because I don't know that there are storylines per se in the Silver Age. There's little bits and pieces. For instance, in those first three issues, you have Professor X uncomfortably in love with Jean Grey. He says it in a thought balloon. He's like, how do I tell her that I love her? And then that storyline just goes away because someone thought better of, you don't, you're in your 50s, she's 15, you let this go, you seek help. Right. It just goes away. I love how people always want to say about that. People always want to go, oh, that's a different time. I'm like, no, in, I mean, in the 50s, that was still not yeah, okay. It was a different time. It was still bad. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, think about the allegory, right? So now we have the allegory and we've got Malcolm X and we've got Martin Luther King. Wait, are you telling me that Martin Luther King, right? I mean, all of those, that's the problem with when you try to have the loose allegory is that when you start trying to nail it down and understand it in literal terms, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're making commentary about the real world figures that you've drawn inspiration from. I think that letting that one go was fine. But there are there are storylines like you have the introduction of Havoc and Laris in the in those early books. I honestly don't think any of them are really memorable. During the early Claremont run, the two things everybody there's a lot of stuff. But the two things that everybody remembers are the Dark Phoenix saga, and immediately following the Dark Phoenix saga, people think there's more of a break, but it's the Days of Future Past saga, which is actually only like three issues. It, it, it's really it's really short, arguably two. Before the Dark Phoenix saga, which people don't like really count, is what I think is one of the when it really starts to get interesting to me is the build up, which is the Hellfire Club saga. Yeah. That's where Jean's or Jean slash the Phoenix, given what would happen in continuity later, that's where she you said we're very much in spoiler mode, right? That's where she falls. That's where she begins to go dark. And you see a character 
that the 50 year old teacher was falling in love with, along with all the other boys in the school, was the prissy little girl next door. She was everybody that you're supposed to, you know, she was the Silver Age aesthetic of both comics under. Uh, have you ever talked about the CCA guidelines on your show, Chris? Like the. We've done, yeah, we've done those. Okay, Comics Code yeah. Authority rules are very much towards a sanctified, very pure idea of what children should be. And Jean was that. She was a good girl. And now she's running around in leather um, lingerie at a upscale rich people club where she's got a whip. That's what the Hellfire Club is. And it's shocking. And yeah, she was maybe being a little bit mind controlled, but she likes it. And that's kind of that's that's where those stories really start building. You're like, oh, there's something here. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, she's right. destroying planets. So that's kind of a. <laughs> this is what I mean by every time they try to tell this story, it's unearned, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can't you can't tell yeah. the Dark Phoenix story without telling the Hellfire Club story. And they don't want to tell the Hellfire mm-hmm. Club story. Mm-hmm. Oh, they mm-hmm. don't want that anywhere. But it's there. great, yeah. and everybody should go back and read it. The Hellfire Club story is great. There's a, there's a reason why we get yeah. almost every other X character at some point in one of these films, and we have never really gotten Emma Frost, <laughs> and we are not going to get <laughs> Emma Frost. Yeah, she's she's briefly in two movies, and she's in the X-Men Origins Wolverine, and then a different version of her is in... First class, but see, first class was a way of hey, we it was the '60s guys, so we have this kind of yeah. Austin Powers <laughs> mm-hmm. filter in our head of that's why there's lingerie and that's why it was because it was the '60s yeah. as if that's the way the right. '60s was, right? But that's how they they remove that '80s embarrassment and kind of reposition it so that mm-hmm. they can get those characters in, and then but they don't have the interactions with the modern characters no. in the way that they right. would have. And it's just a completely different story. I think if you're a long-term comic book reader, like the three of us, you understand what I mean by we're not going to get Emma Frost. No, no, you're like, not going to get, like we've oh, gotten no Emma way. Frost in movies, but we're not going to get Emma. No, Frost. She's not. Yeah. You can't. And, right. and maybe you will. I mean, like it's kind of weird because now it's going to be owned by Disney as we talked about on, on the last episode and who knows where they're going to go with it. But if they allow you to stretch your wings a bit, you, know, you can, do a story like that. You can do a slow build over multiple movies, over different characters. She's got to be different. Or Disney Plus television. And the, that's the thing. How sanctified do you want to put something on Disney Plus? They've got Mandalorian, which I'm, you know, exactly. which I love. So right. you can do it. You own Hulu or 90% of it. So, you know. By the way, another thing we didn't talk about that I think is probably relevant here is this is where that mythical Marvel R label <laughs> is floating around out there there has been this what do we do with deadpool mm-hmm. right floating around out there and they at one point disney was very clear like marvel r will be a thing and all of these marvel r stories will be for grown-ups very clearly labeled as for grown-ups and then we can put things like logan and we can put things like deadpool and we can move those you know this new new mutants movie that's coming out <laughs> you think it's gonna come out a part of the reason why it hasn't come out is because they can't figure out what the rating is <laughs> you, they can't figure out a rating for the movie so they can't put it out you think that movie's you know? gonna come out that's adorable yeah <laughs> <laughs> they want to put it out as a pg-13 but the people who made it are like no we specifically made this as a horror movie this is an r-rated movie yeah. and they're having a heart which is why they can't release the film it currently the news film comes up a lot on our show it currently has a release date in in August of this year. And let's see if that happens. Cause I'm not convinced there are going to be any more movies this year. 
but it, they've gone through five. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I'll believe that when I see it. There, I don't think new mutants exist. I think new mutants is just a clever ploy. It's a myth that you tell you tell children to make them behave. <laughs> That's new mutants. The whole coronavirus, of course, is like a propaganda for this film, right? I mean, it's it's a lived in experience. You can experience the horror film yeah. yes. with your risk, right? <laughs> that, you know, with all those storylines that we were talking about, though, like I think you get buildups like those, and then I think that you have other th- in that era as well. You've got the introduction of the new mutants which is the demon bear story. Well, it's not the introduction. The new mutants get introduced in a graphic novel, but really we talked about this at length on, on my show. So I don't want to go too much into it because trust me, it's like a 45 minute conversation that you'll have to edit down. And we are going to, and we are going to link no, to, well, your, no, no, to, no, 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 I don't mean, no, so, I mean, I had that. I spent last night yeah. editing down 45 minutes of conversation about, de- about <laughs> demon bear, which is brilliant into something manageable. Demon Bear, just for really quick, it's the storyline that in theory, if there were a New Minutes movie, which I, again, Santa Claus, but it's supposed to be based on that. <laughs> and it is a story where the premise of the story is the New Minutes who are this kid team of X-Men that gets invented. They're a new class of X-Men. And one of the kids, their leader, is Danny Moonstar. She is um, a Native American teenager who's grown up with all these stories from the elders of mysticism and shamanism. And, you know, she's got respect for elders, but I don't think she really believes any of it. And one of the stories is this demon bear who is a you know, mystical part of their religion. And, you know, you're 15 years old. You're like, all right, grandpa. And then the demon bear shows up and they got to deal with the demon bear. And it is brilliant. It is absolutely terrifying. It's, it's one of the first times that comics can be terrifying because Bill, Bill Sienkiewicz's artwork just draws this thing that is as Sienkiewicz doesn't care about scale or proportion as far as realism. Sienkiewicz cares about pushing his point with his artwork. He is expressionistic rather than, rather than realistic. So the demon bear is as big as it needs to be in any given panel in order to make you scared of it as a, and it is breathtaking, which is why I'm actually looking forward to that movie that doesn't exist. I want to see the demon bear, (laughs) you know, in, that's a great storyline. And we haven't talked about Legion and the fate of that show, which, you know, I was a New Mutants reader, so I I, I liked the treatment mm-hmm. of that. And it's that same kind of approach where if you're going to tell stories about the insides of people's heads and the way that they work and, you know, the line between sanity, insanity, and mutant ability and how all that comes together, that FX show has been brilliant. And in its way of touching the x-men without (laughs) touching it right i mean it kind of does it kind of doesn't and i'm waiting to see what the trajectory of that's going to be right and and to the degree they're supposed to wrap it up this season but is there any television anymore who knows (laughs) coronavirus changes everything so you know well that is the big question isn't it will there even be any such thing as television this fall who knows that said, I think right here is a good time to go ahead and take a little break. So let's stop right here. We'll come back in two and two, and we'll get into some more X-Men storylines. Are you tired of the same old, boring movie reviews? Get the latest movie news and passionate reviews from real film lovers like you on 21st Century Cinema. My name is Joseph Delavecchia, and I host 21st Century Cinema, an easy-to-listen-to podcast available on all platforms. Every two weeks, me and one of my co-hosts break down the latest in film and the film industry, and we'd love for you to join our conversation. Subscribe to 21st Century Cinema now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back. So before the break, we were talking about the new mutants and Demon Bear. What else you got from the early 80s? God Loves Man Kills is from that era, which is, you know, we talked a lot about the, the, it is the most explicitly the X-Men has ever dealt with the problem of racism, which is what that story is about. The villain in God Loves Man Kills is a Bible-bumping preacher who just hates you because you're different. That's what that story is about. And it's really good, really powerful, really hard to read if you are approaching it from a 2020 perspective, going back and reading what was really innovative in the 80s. There is, you know, especially you're thinking about this as a comic book, and this is a comic book which uses the N-word. This is a comic book where black children are killed in the opening couple of pages in a, a racially motivated hate crime to make a point that is very shocking because we're not in the place where we use our comic books that way right now in the 2020s. But like, if you take the story for what it is and realize what they're trying to say, it's not like they glamorize it. Well, they're saying this is awful. And the government and all of just the institutional racism at all levels and how it affects our mm-hmm. society and how it plays out. But it just doesn't flinch. I have my students actually read that book. And that's what to their 17 and 18 year old brains is, is so hard is trying to get to, they'll immediately say, the N-word was in a book, and I, I couldn't believe that word was there. And I'm like, on page two, on page yeah, two. What about the child that was killed? Like, I mean, you know, or, it's such a different media world, and, right? Yeah. And I think that if you read it in the right context and you look at it, yeah, this is a story from the past. Because when my students, if I have an 18 or 19-year-old student, I've had students literally say to me, Back in the old days when there was racism, and I'm like, whoa, wow. Because <laughs> to them, the 80s was a million years ago. That's twice their age. It's hard to reckon, and it makes me feel really old. But I, I get it, I guess. But then you read something like God Loves Man Tales, and you can say, all right, okay, so how do you reconcile this with putting children in cages by the government right now for crossing the border? And that's when they start to get the story. These are universal concepts that... Since it's an allegory, it's not like you're it's not like you're reading March. It's reading a story about a fictional oppression that could relate to the civil rights movement of the sixties or the eighties or it's one of those things where I constantly have to remind my friends and colleagues who are our age, and I by our I mean the three of us, those of us mm-hmm. who are mid seventies kids, born in the nineteen <laughs> seventies, yeah. I constantly have to remind people our age that the way our students think about the nineteen eighties is the way we think when our parents talk about things that happened in the fifties. It might yes. as well have been in a whole different universe yeah. than they have access to. Well, so when I teach Marvel right. 80s comics as a little bit of an aside, I do have to explain who Ronald Reagan was, for example. They not only don't recognize his voice, they don't know that was a person. Uh, they don't know that was a president. And I'm not trying to lament about, you know, the well, you know generations or, or anything. No, it's referential. It's not, I'm not sad about it. I, it's just a reminder that that's the time gap. Yeah. I, I, I had this discussion with a colleague. I was teaching, not even, this wasn't a, a comics course. This was just a, an intro freshman writing course. And I, I had them doing analysis. Of the, and we, they, we went to a website that just had articles by people. It was just uh, opinion pieces. And they were just doing, you know, rhetorical analysis, reading opinion pieces. And just randomly, one of them picked a piece by Colin Powell. A lot of these were written by just random people. But this one happened to be written by Colin Powell. 
And they, when they were presenting on it, they were like, well, you know, this guy, he's some kind of general. It says he worked for the government. Blah, blah. And when I was meeting with the student later and another teacher was with me. Another uh, one of my colleagues was with me. And she was like, wait, you don't know who Colin Powell is? And she's, and my student was like, should I? I mean, he's a general. I mean, I assume he was a, and then after they left us talking with my coworker, how can they not know Colin Powell? And I was like, Colin Powell fought in a war 15 years before she was born. <laughs> like, I, 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 Colin like, Powell I might as well know be the Ulysses name. S. Grant. You're right. Well, no, Grant got to become president. I don't know who off the top of my head, I'm sure I could, maybe I'll remember it, but I, I don't know who the Joint Chiefs of Staff were under Kennedy or right. under Truman. Like, I, don't, <laughs> like I, I have no idea. Like, maybe if I looked them up, them up, I would remember them. But, you know, to me, he's a present figure in my life because <laughs> I was there. I think that's the danger of doing something like historical fiction where it needs to matter. Whereas these kids, you know who Professor X is. So they this know is another Wolf point is. that Chris and I have talked about on these epics. You know, I do a lot of work on Captain America, and that, that character has a particular problem because Captain America's stories mm-hmm. always draw a national authority, which means he's met with every president. But because he's mm-hmm. done that, that ties him to specific contexts. When Ronald Reagan fires him in the 80s, but he also interacted with LBJ, and he's only been out of the ice for 10 years, right? You have this kind of like floating time thing, which the X-Men get to avoid. Because when you think about the history of the way that the X-Men allegory works, one of the express, I think, brilliant points is, yeah, Senator Robert Kelly can exist in any era if you really want him to. It doesn't have to be these very explicit things. The X-Men go to space for a long time, right? And we, so you have all these epic stories that could be located completely independent of Earth's history. And so there's something about that, the power of that allegory where we keep hitting these themes. And then that also gives us these teachable moments of how to apply it to today's environment because students can't go back and say, well, the reason why this was written was because of Ronald Reagan. They don't know who Ronald Reagan is and they don't, you know, know those points, but they don't have to because of the way that these stories are crafted. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, and, and you know, some of them better than others, being mad at someone because they're different, you know, hating someone because they're different, which is what God loves man kills is, is mm-hmm. it's 2020. They knew who God is. It is. I'm pretty sure I have right. seen one of those before, you know, like it, it, you, you can work <laughs> out these base concepts that I think God loves man kills works on the same level as say an animal farm. Animal Farm is a great story, whether or not I know the history of the Russian Re- Revolution, I can figure it out from the concept of what the allegory of Animal Farm is without really needing to I'm know. I'm glad you brought up Animal thing. Farm because to further push this, these stories are also stories like Animal Farm in that you can interpret them from two very different directions, from multiple very different directions, and still have the story make sense and still have the story represent something meaningful to you. My students don't mm-hmm. have to know the entire history of all over at this point, over 350 different X-Men characters to understand this is a story about being different and people not liking you. And whether you want to attach that to blackness or you want to attach that to being gay or you want to attach that to being poor or whatever. Religion, right. Religion, whatever. It all still makes sense in the same way that Animal Farm could be a story about 
the dangers of communism, but it can also very well be a story about the dangers of capitalism. And it just depends on where your perspective is when you read that story. And it still can be very salient and it still can be very meaningful to you. And I think you're right, Rick. I think that's where X-Men have an advantage over other stories that really historically locate them in specific ways in that this story is timeless. People will always be mean to people who are different than them. And that can exist whenever. It's, it's relatively free of ideology. We discovered, we did some polling a while back um, at the comic book store, and I found out other people had done the same thing. When Not when the movie came out, but when the comic book Civil War came out, and it, Marvel had done this big, huge campaign, are you Team Iron Man or Cap? Everyone chose Team Cap. Everyone chose Team Cap. And what became amazing, and I've seen people do papers on this, do academic papers on this, it turns out that the choice of cap is a political choice that is independent of your actual political identity, which is to say that Democrats chose cap because they believed that Republicans were represented by the overreaching Iron Man, who was an agent of the state. Republicans chose cap because they believed that Iron Man represented the liberal Democrats who were an agent of the state. Like they, right. like both sides saw the other side as the bad guy because no one wants to believe that Captain America doesn't yeah. stand for them. He, he just right. is, you know, Captain America. Of course, Captain America is my America because that's Which what Captain America means. you see most explicitly means. at the end of that saga when, you know, I guess it's not spoiler alert that in 2007 that Captain America was assassinated at the end of this. But if you look at the New York Times, I mean, that was on the front web edition of the New York Times that Mm -hmm. Captain America had been assassinated. If you read those letters, I'm real big on reader response and letters and and interested. You saw, I mean, the multiple reactions. You've got we've got conservative people saying, oh, my gosh, look at what liberal Marvel has done to Captain America. Of course, they assassinated him because they can't stand for justice and the American flag. And then you've got progressives like, of course, in George Bush, America's Captain America would get killed. Right. I mean, and you get both of those things happening. So you have those moments. But even then, Civil War was a very carefully cultivated and constructed Iron Man and Captain America as they exist in though that narrative are distinctly different than they are in their in their ongoing series. They kind of had to be tweaked. But the tie back into this when we're when we're thinking about Civil War is where were the X-Men and all this sitting on the sidelines with the exception of Wolverine, who was currently an Avenger. But that was kind of a big deal is we're going to do this, but somehow the X-Men get to, you stay in your mansion and we're just going to have this kind of awkward apartheid system where we're going to watch you and let you sit out of all American politics. Which Yeah. The, well, and this is, again, part of the reason why I gravitate towards this text so much. For me, there was a lot of validation in the fact that, number one, the X-Men are just sequestered into Xavier's school. They don't take part. Number two... Daredevil just micromanages the out of Hell's Kitchen and refuses to take part in the larger... He's like, if you come between 34th and 59th Street, you're getting beat down. That's I don't care which side you're on. <laughs> don't come in my neighborhood. And then Luke Cage does the same thing with his own house. He's like, I'm just going to stay home. For me, there's certain resonance in that, in that all three of these stories, Mm -hmm. Luke Cage, Daredevil, and X-Men, all three of which are explicitly identity stories, 
those mm-hmm. characters all sit out yeah. this conflict between white yeah, America civil, and the, the government. The Civil War they was between white out. people. I mean, it really was. Um, different different, exactly. er, different mm-hmm. views of the establishment and privilege. And anyone who actually was directly and disproportionately affected by it didn't get to participate. Now, some of those characters did get wrapped into the story later. And, you know, that that's, you know, Luke Cage always has an in and out on either side of the line from the Secret Avengers and, and all of that. But ultimately, yeah, the X-Men, just to circle back to what, what Chris was saying, the X-Men, the difference with the X-Men stories, and I do want to talk about House of M, so I don't want to lose that, is that every one of them, if you're looking at Husk, and so now we're looking at, here's a Muslim character who is facing oppression because of her identity, or we're looking at North Star, who is gay, right? Or we're looking at Iceman, who is gay. Or we're looking at... All of them have a different reason for being oppressed, but the oppression is very general, is very consistent. So you find the, mm-hmm. the entry point, your gateway, into this narrative, and then it just kind of builds out from there. And so you get to see this story replicated in different ways over and over and over to kind of show this universal oppression that all of these characters are facing. And I think that's also what makes it so enduring. I would agree. Okay, so looking at the clock... I think we've got time that we can cover one thing before oh. we have to wrap. So I know that we have floated House of M. I know we floated Powers of X yeah. and House of X. I know we floated Legacy Virus. We floated a lot of these big storylines. So what what do we think we can tackle? How about this? Relatively... Let, let me do five minutes on House of M and then y'all pick the other one. Okay. How about you do five minutes on House of M? I will do five minutes on Legacy Virus, then Mav can do five minutes on Powers of X, and that will bring us to... Uh, I, can, okay. I can do it in five, uh, yeah. Yeah, because I think that... And those those happen yeah. in succession, so... Yes. Is that the right order? So yes. So the okay. thing about X-Men also is that even though a lot of what happens in X-Men is sequestered from the mainstream Marvel Universe in many ways, it also becomes the fulcrum point. And so... One of the really interesting stories, I thought, was the House of M idea. So this is coming in the middle of Brian Michael Bendis kind of deconstructing all of these different layers of the Marvel Universe after Alias, after, you know, he got his hands on Daredevil and Luke Cage and and some of these characters to kind of reposition what does it mean to be a hero on an individual level in this social universe. House of M is kind of an inversion of the Marvel view of the X-Men, which is, what if mutants were the ones that came to power? And what if, to be considered normal, you needed to be a mutant? And so you see this kind of repositioning of all of the hero narratives in that you have characters like, of course, House of M is for Magneto and his family. You know, Wolverine is an enforcer, but all of these people are part of the establishment. You've got characters like Spider-Man pretending to be mutants, hiding their origin point so that they can fit in. But what's really interesting at the heart of this that I think a lot of people forget is without X-Men, without any of those mutant stories, we don't get Captain Marvel. We don't get Carol Danvers. We don't get a lot of those pieces because Claremont's the one that kind of rescued, as Chris knows, I I could go on about this forever, rescued Carol Danvers from the X-Men writers (laughs) and kind of saved her. But House of M is also that moment where... She gets to become a superhero legitimately for the first time. And she's one of the few characters that that memory of what happens in House of M, of her increased status, leads to eventually the 2012 
Captain Marvel book that is where the movie, you know, draws heavily from. So even mm-hmm. in all of that, X-Men giving their otherness to white people, <laughs> giving them space to work out that actually gives us most of the characters. None of the mainstream MCU characters that we look at are untouched by it, ultimately. And so even when they have this big mm-hmm. deconstructive moment where we're going to flip the script and Magneto is the dominant one and the you know X-Men narrative is, is, is the subordinate, we still see this kind of ever-branching kind of system that reforms a lot of those characters that then become the new establishment for the next generation. Cool. Let's <laughs> love that ending. Cool. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised okay. by that. Okay, so the thing about House of M that I think is so interesting is House of M is a story in which a major character, in this case Scarlet Witch, mm-hmm. for those of you who are have seen the movies at least you're familiar with Scarlet Witch. Scarlet Witch's children die and she wishes away the universe because unlike in the movies in the comic books, Scarlet Witch is one of the most powerful people on Earth. She is one of the most powerful characters in the entire Marvel Universe. And so she basically wishes away reality. And then in this new universe, some people retained their memories of the old universe and some people didn't. And that's what made this such a really interesting read is the idea of if the whole world was different, but you knew it, what would you do? (laughs) Especially if the thing that you knew was dangerous for you to reveal to other people that you knew it. Mm -hmm. Which is another of the X-Men tropes that spans most of these giant story arcs. Mm -hmm. It's always some version of, I know a thing, and knowing that thing could get me killed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That House of M storyline about, all three of these storylines really are about the nature of the relationship between mutants and non-mutants. Yes. In the Legacy Virus storyline, the Legacy Virus storyline comes from the mid-1990s. It starts in, I think, 93-ish, and it runs through the beginning of 2000. The most famous issue, the issue that I actually have framed on my wall, the comic book people, I have it slabbed, and it's slabbed on my wall, is the issue where Colossus ends the Legacy Virus. The Legacy Virus is this storyline of really apartheid. It's this story of the mutants have been tired of being persecuted. And so for their own good, quote unquote, they begin to be sequestered in this place called Genosha. Genosha is an island. It's off the coast of Africa. And it becomes a mutant kingdom. Mm-hmm. And... The problem with that is this guy from the future, (laughs) it's always a guy from the future, this guy from the future who is a clone of a character named Cable, this guy from the future shows up and infects people, mutants, with this disease. And it only affects mutants and it's killing them off. It's killing all the mutants. So now, not only do you have this apartheid narrative, but you also have this vague mid-90s AIDS narrative. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's running through this as well, which is this very specific group of people are getting sick. And the way that society deals with that is they begin to, against their will, tranquilize mutants and send them to Genosha. They begin to deport them. 
<laughs> basically, to Genosha. So you have this huge group of people on Genosha, all these mutants, and they're getting sick and they're dying, right? So Magneto, of course, because he's Magneto, goes to the island and is like, this is what humans do to us. This is, the, you are the product of what happens when humans are in control. Well, in the meantime, Beast, who is, you know, one of the smartest people on the planet in the X universe, he develops a cure for the legacy virus. And the problem with the cure is in order for it to spread, the person who has it has to die. So Colossus volunteers because his sister dies of the legacy virus. Mm -hmm. Magic. Ilyana. She dies. She gets brought back to life later because everyone does. But so Ilyana has died. Peter is sad about that Colossus. And so he volunteers to be the carrier. So he gets the legacy virus cure and he injects himself with it. And then he turns into a steel form, which then amplifies the cure and it spreads to everyone on the Island and he dies, but everyone else is cured of the legacy virus. And Magneto uses all of these recently cured mutants to say, now we're all here in the same place. Let's form an army. It's our turn to take over the planet. So this is the second of those mutants take over the universe storylines based on the inhumanity of humanity, mm -hmm. which then is going to lead us into the third of these story arcs, <laughs> which is that Power of X story arc. Well, there's probably other ones too. I mean, it is a recurring theme. Everybody takes their stab at it. House of X, Powers of X, are a massive undertaking by Jonathan Hickman, who's newly in charge of the X universe. We've talked on this episode and the last one about how one of the problems with an ongoing comic series is you've had 57 years now of X-Men comics written by a couple hundred different people, drawn by a couple hundred different people, some of whom care more about continuity than other people, and some who don't care at all. And, you know, what is Wolverine's origin? It's what I decided it was this week. And, and, you know, there's a lot of inconsistency. There's a lot of reboot. And Hickman's project, and if you've read other Hickman stuff, you sort of get it, is that he just wants to make this all make sense. And he goes about making it make sense. And he writes a story that basically postulates that over the last several decades, Moira McTaggart, who... Prior to now, was never a mutant. In fact, she was the first and only human victim of the legacy virus in the previous storyline. Well, she was a mutant all along. And Moira's power is that whenever she dies, she is instantly reincarnated at the moment of her birth with all the knowledge that she has previously gained. So right now, she's just ridiculously smart, and she remembers living well past the current moment. 12 or 13 times and she's just always reincarnated to live out her life again so she's just constantly smarter and that that's when some narrative inconsistencies it ties together storylines like the phalanx um technocracy covenant which is a new unit storyline with Kirkening warlock it goes hundreds of years into the future the idea of powers of x is that it starts at X-Men Year Zero, then it looks at X-Men Year 10, X-Men Year 100, and X-Men Year 1000, and sort of the progression through these storylines. And then at the same time, there's another story going on called House of X, which is Magneto and Professor X. And it turns out, actually, Moira, though you don't know it, 
trying to build a moder- a better world right now. And the stories kind of interconnect. You should read them both together. Powers of X is more about cleaning up the timeline and House of X is more about resetting the status quo. But essentially what it does is it tries to make this apartheid system. They're on another island instead of Genosha. Now they're on an island called Krakoa, which goes all the way back to giant size X-Men number one. Not worth explaining right now. But, um, but they created their own nation where all people who are citizens of the nation are all mutants on Earth. And this is the this is the voluntarily separating ourselves to make a better world because human world sucks. And they try to present it as a positive. And, you know, the humans don't want them to. So the humans are the bad guys in this story. They, you know, we don't trust the other. We don't trust a race that has decided to Liberia itself voluntarily because they've got a lot of power. So we're going to stop you. Well, the X-Men say we are power. We're the X-Men. You are, you know, they, they adopt some of that. It's Magneto and, and Professor X's warring ideologies over the last 50 years suddenly just meshing together. And they're saying, yeah, we're not going to kill you, but we do believe that we're the next step in human evolution. So we're just going to go over here and wait for you to die. And you're going to deal with it because you have no choice. And by the way, we solve death, so we're not going to die. They give a storyline reason for reincarnation. They give a storyline reason. There's a lot of just trying to make stuff work. And in doing so, he tries to explore a lot of, it's been subtle and it's been over since that story ended into the changes that have happened across all the other experts. He tries to explore some other things. What does religion mean when everybody's immortal? So they build a new religion. What does sexuality mean? when everybody's immortal. One thing that happens in the storyline, which is very, very subtle, but clearly intentional, is there's always been the who's in a relationship between does Gene love Scott more, does Gene love Logan more? In the House of X storyline, and they've not made a big deal of it, but they've made it very clear, she is in a relationship with both of them. He is probably, and possibly also, also Emma Frost. It's been unclear. And it's quite possible that Scott and, and Logan are in a bisexual relationship with each other now. They, the map of their, they, there's very clearly a map of the Summer's home where Logan now lives. And they each have separate bedrooms. Cable lives there, Rachel lives there, and Havoc lives there. And then Gene and Scott and Logan have three bedrooms which have open doors between them, whereas everybody else's doors are closed. And there's been lots of little hints to the fact that they're they're all together now. So it's a questioning of what does family mean? What does what does religion mean? What does race even mean? Kitty Pride and Magneto, both of whom have clearly stated they were Jewish before, now very much consider their race to be muted. So does that erase your previous identity? And it's trying to really answer those questions, which is sort of a little different than trying to stand in for all for all otherism, which is what it had been done prior to that, now it's trying to sort of do this. I don't want to call it post-racial because that sounds like I'm making light of it. I think he's trying to do something very interesting because part of it is very cultish. Part of it is, which is what happens when something's a new religion. Why do we look down upon Scientology? It's just a new religion because it's newer than Christianity or, or Islam. People look more down on Scientology than they do on Mormonism, which is also the one that people used to look down on just because it's a new religion. Well, they've got this new religion, so it seems here. And and, th- and those are all interesting questions. It's, it's only been a year, so it's been very fun to explore. There's so much 
going on in this text. There's so many things we could latch onto. And so it seems as though this question is going to be very difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. But it's the question that we always end our discussions with, which is <laughs> the X-Men. So what? The X-Men <laughs> allows otherness to pull the veil back on in the structures of society, of human relationships, and the way in which we consistently push people down in order to create um, what we consider quote-unquote normal society. And so that enduring and constant challenging of that in many different ways gives us a way and gives my students a way to think about how the world looks from a different vantage point gives them a a place where they can sidestep their own privilege and look a little bit differently at the substrata of what helps that be. The X-Men, if everybody is other, then nobody is other. (laughs) That's that's my, I think it's uh, sort of the the Incredibles version of, of it, which is depending on the writer and depending on the era, there's been good and bad parts of that. You know, we we didn't mention it, but the, the, end of the House of M storyline is that suddenly there's no more mutants, which is odd because there are there are more mutants, but they've decimated the immunity population from millions to 197. I think that was the number. It was, um, and part of that is the genocide of it all, but also it's the, now you're really on the outside if you're a tenth or a hundredth of a percent of the population. That's something. But on the other hand, look at House of M, and they've now re-empowered every mutant that ever was, and all the ones who are dead, they've brought back to life. So now being a mutant isn't that weird. And if, you know, why was being a mutant weird? Why did we ever mistrust mutants but not Spider-Man? Or they're effectively the same because one guy got bit and the other person was born with the powers? That makes one of them weirder? Well, okay, but is somebody weirder just because their skin's darker or because they happen to have sex with somebody who you don't think they should be having sex with? So... Yeah, everybody's other, but nobody's other. It's just a cultural construction that we've made. I would say much like something like Harry Potter or (laughs) Star Wars or whatever, the X-Men is a cultural text largely written by white people that has very easy entree for non-white people to use to our own narrative benefit. That is a story about ostensibly five white kids with superpowers who are different than other people can somehow also speak to my life experiences as a black presenting biracial human being in American society. And I think that's the brilliance of the narrative. I think there's something very unique and special about X-Men and about the construction of that X-Universe that is the culmination of hundreds of authors and hundreds of artists and people across the spectrum of humanity pouring their souls and their lived experiences into this one narrative that there is something to be found in this narrative for just about anyone when everyone is other no one is is i think one way to look at it i think another way to look at it is all of us who have been othered in some way can find a common space 
And I think that there's something kind of remarkable in that. Something uncanny. <laughs> you need a rim shot. <laughs> so, thank you, uh, dear listener, for hanging in here with us for what, at the time of this recording, seems like is going to be a very long two episodes. <laughs> But thank you for sticking with us all the way to the end. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's completely fascinating, and hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. So for Dr. Rick Stevens and soon-to-be Dr. Chris Maverick, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you, Rick and Chris, for joining me Thanks on this adventure. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having us. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Wash your hands. Justice for Brianna Taylor. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.